Amen. Our reading from God's Holy Word comes from the letter of 1 John. 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 5 and continuing to chapter 2, verse 2. This is the reading of God's Holy Word. This is the message that we have heard from Him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His Word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Father, as we gather now in your presence, having heard your word read, and with anticipation looking to your word as it is expounded, we would ask for your grace. We would ask for the power of the Holy Spirit. For we acknowledge that unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain, those of us who try to build it. That we, Lord, can stack the wood and build the altar, but it is only you who can bring the fire. It is only you that can accomplish the purpose for which this word is read, for which this word is sent. We would ask now that you would have your way in our midst. You would free minds and hearts of distractions. And that you would open us up to receive the seed of the gospel. That it would find fallow ground within our hearts. And that it would bear fruit that speaks to your power and to your glory. Come now and be mindful of us, O Lord. Take note that we are but dust. And remake us into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. Yesterday, I was going through the bulletin, preparing for today, actually spending time with my family last night. It is our custom on Saturday nights to work through the bulletin together. It was earlier in the day where I was, as I do, think through the hymns that we're going to sing, the scripture readings, where it is that the Lord is going to take us. And I was struck again by the second verse in the second hymn that we sang This morning, wonderful, merciful Savior. I love just a little bit ago singing that with you. 
As I looked out, so many of you, um, clearly by your facial expressions and the way in which you sang, love that song. It means something deeply to you. You may have memories or history with that song, but maybe it's just the beautiful refrains and the way the song is written and the melody that attends it. It was this second verse that really stuck out to me yesterday because it reminded me of actually a story. Now listen to the second verse. Counselor, comforter, keeper, spirit we long to embrace. You offer hope when our hearts have hopelessly lost the way. Oh, we hopelessly lost the way. You offer hope. You offer hope when we've hopelessly lost the way. You ever, you ever been lost? We all have. We've all been lost. I was reminded yesterday of just how lost I was one time with a band of my friends hiking in the woods. We had traveled some distance to kind of close to the Blue Ridge area in the Appalachian Mountains for a several day hike. As was our often custom, we would hike in sort of in the evening, set up a base camp, enjoy a good meal because it would be the only one we would have for a couple of days on the trail. And then we would strike out from that base camp and make loops in the mountains coming back to that base camp and just enjoy great fellowship together. I have some wonderful friends that I've enjoyed being in the woods with for years. Well, one time when we were making one of those hiking expeditions, we uh, ran late in terms of our time. We didn't estimate how long it would take to get there, and we got there late. We actually got there past sundown, and we had about a couple of miles to kind of get in before we got to the place in which base camp could be set up, which meant that if we were going to actually do this thing, we were going to have to hike in the dark. It's okay. I have super uber prepared friend who leads our hiking expeditions. He has lights and flashlights and headlamps of all sorts. We're going to be absolutely fine. And he always seems to know where it is that we are supposed to go. Or so we thought. We struck out on what looked to be the trail. We got maybe a half a mile down that trail and all of a sudden we realized this is not the trail. Because we begin to hit all kinds of underbrush, all kinds of hedge. This trail, whatever looked like a trail, just began to disappear before us. And we were scaling a side of a cliff. I mean, literally a river running down below. And we're going, I don't think this is the trail. I mean, we're all acknowledging we have lost, hopelessly lost, our way. I'm thankful that one of my friends, who's quite adventurous, jumped out from that trail, kind of climbed up a little ridge and actually found the trail that we were supposed to be on. It gave us a wonderful opportunity to rib my friend who had gotten us lost the entirety of that hiking trip. He no longer talks to me. <laughs> There's a book that Arthur Bors has written called The Way is Made by Walking. The Way is Made by Walking. It's a recounting of a pilgrimage that he took down a trail known as the Camino de Santiago. Some of you may actually know this 
ancient path. It was a path that was used by Christians of old as a pilgrimage. It's in northwestern Spain. In the midst of his recounting of his time there, both those things which he observed and experienced, people he met along the way, and yes, spiritual growth that the Lord brought about through that pilgrimage. He gets to the end in a chapter where he talks about the, here I walk, I can do no other. Some of you will know that phrase from Martin Luther, here I stand, I can do no other. But he begins to talk about how standing, as important as that is, doesn't get at the fullness of the Christian life. Walking is absolutely essential. In the text that's before us, walking is highlighted as the lead metaphor to describe the Christian life. And he actually said this really interesting phrase, that, the, that, that, I, that walking, here I walk, I can do no other, he then says... The way that we keep faith is with our feet. He says, the way that we keep faith is with our feet. Now, Bohr's, when he says that, is describing the actionable or the behavioral, the living out of the Christian life is how we really keep the faith. It must be embodied. It must be practiced. It ultimately must be lived. In the text that's before us, John wants to urge us into a life of faith that is made by walking. Uh, But walking that is keeping the faith through our feet by the light of the lamp of the Word of God, by the truth of the Lord. Your Word is a lamp unto my feet. It is a light unto my path. It is a pathway that we must walk in the Christian life, an action that we must bring about. It is a behavior that we must conduct. In fact, if we're always just sitting still, we're always just standing, we're falling short to what it is our ultimate call is in the Christian life. This life is going somewhere. It requires movement. But here's the problem. If you move... You might get lost. And with those of us in this room, people like ourselves who are indeed fraught with the reality of internal darkness, we will inescapably at some level get lost. And so how do we find our way? How do we continue to keep faith with our feet? In the passage that's before us, John is writing to a church or a group of churches in Asia Minor who have lost their way. They have fallen under false teaching, false teaching that's infiltrated the ranks, and it's caused division within the church, and it's led to even some of the membership leaving the fellowship altogether. Read about it in 1 John chapter 2, 19 and 20, where he says, They went out from us because they were never of us. John now writes this letter to encourage those who are, as it were, left behind. Those who have questions about what happened. Those who really want to know what's true. Those who may be wondering whether they are really saved. Have they received the light? And so what John does in this passage is that he shows us when we're lost, what we say and what we do. And then he shows us in this passage, 
what Jesus says or what God says and what he does to rescue us. He, he first says, here's what we say, here's what we do when we're lost. And here's what Jesus says, here's what God says. And here's what God does to rescue us when we're lost and to put us upon that way. Let's look at those two points together as we give our attention to God's Word. I want to look first here at what we say, what we do when we're lost. The reality is we don't always know that we're lost. Sometimes we think that we're found when, in fact, we're lost. And John is actually drawing a portrait here for a group of people who have to come to clarity over whether they truly know the Lord or not. And we said last time that he puts us through a series of tests through the course of this letter. Tests that are theological, what it is that we believe. Tests that are moral, how is it that we are behaving. Tests that are relational, how is it that we are loving one another. As he pushes us through these tests, the, 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 the proof and the pudding, as it were, comes to the surface. Who we really are is revealed. I want you to see that John is after that in the midst of this text. Because here... He describes two groups of people who are religious. Two groups of people who are religious, who think they know the Lord, who would describe themselves under the light, but who are in fact lost, who are in the darkness. The person, the first group or first persons who he thinks, who think that they know the Lord, but in reality are lost, is what he describes as the hypocrite. Look with me at verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. Uh, John here is contrasting what it is we say with our lips to how it is that we walk in our lives. He's contrasting, we might say, our talk life as opposed to our walk life. John says you can't have fellowship, you can't have koinonia, Word that we looked at last week together, an intimate, living, loving, sacrificial relationship with God. You can't have fellowship with God if you persist in doing the deeds and in walking in the way of darkness. Now, why is that the case? Look at verse 5. He says, this is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. John's logic is really simple here. If God is in the light and you are walking in the darkness, then you are not walking with God. If God is in the light, and you are walking in the darkness, you're, you're walking in the deeds of darkness, then you are not walking with God. You do not have fellowship with God. You're, you're like a person who says, you know, I'm on a diet, and trying to cut back some, while you're munching on a donut. The two actions are absolutely incompatible. They're even contradictory. They're working against one another. The question that John is actually raising for us as he writes to these churches in Asia Minor is, does our talk life and our walk life match? Do who it is that we say that we are and what it is that we say we believe manifest itself in the way that we live? In the actions, in the behaviors, in the reality? What would be the, the street-level report on our conduct? And does it match up to who it is that we say we are and what it is that we say we believe? John says, if there is a gap between these realities, 
then you have to begin to ask yourself, do I really know God? Have I truly been saved? Well, now that's a very unsettling way to put it. We said last week together that John, as he pushes us through these tests, he is going to both comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. That's what John is going to do. He is here afflicting the comfortable. Those who've made an alliance with what it is they profess and then go and act in ways that are contrary to it, he's saying that's untenable. That's the sign of someone who's not walking with the Lord, and it raises a holy concern about your spiritual condition. Now, maybe some of you are thinking, there's a dozen areas, there's two dozen areas in my life where I say one thing or believe something, and my life does not match up to that which I say I believe. Thank you for those head nods. I saw them out there. Yes, maybe a few of you felt that in this and you thought, I'm really in a lot of trouble. Uh, is John suggesting here, if there's in any way, shape, or form where there is a distance between what I say I believe and what I do, that I am not saved? And here's what John is saying. He's saying, not necessarily, but maybe. Not necessarily, but Maybe. A minute ago, I used the language of sinning persistently, habitually, and unrepentantly. That's really John's point in saying in this context. Is, are you a person that not falls from time to time, but someone who is persistently uh, engaging habitually, unrepentantly, in the direction of and in the works of darkness, and yet you're simultaneously trying to hold on to or say that you have faith with the Lord? Or are you a person who, yes, falls every single day and you struggle with sin, but you struggle with it? You're at war with it. You're fighting it. Let me put it in this way. There's a difference between someone who's a hardened hypocrite and someone who struggles with hypocrisy. Every one of us in this room struggles with hypocrisy. Trust me, we all struggle with hypocrisy. But some of us don't know we struggle. Some of us don't realize we're hypocrites. And then others of us realize we're hypocrites. And it doesn't bother us. And we're not trying to overcome it. And we're not striving. It's those people who John's speaking to. Who say, I'm not a hypocrite. What are you talking about? <laughs> hmm. Or the one who acknowledges they're a hypocrite and says, yeah, you know, well, if you think so, right? it's not that big of a deal to me. Everybody does. Everybody sins. You hear, the, you hear the shoulder shrug in that? You hear the casual nature towards sin? You hear the, the lack of grief about it? You hear the lack of concern that that's an affront to a holy God who loves you and has given his, his son for you? That lack of a spirit of interest or care or laissez-faire attitude towards it, John says there should be holy concern in your heart. And you should be asking yourself, do I truly know the Lord? 
But those who have truly come to know God, you know what? You can look back on your life and you can say, you know, I used to just love that sin. Now I hate it. I, I, I used to befriend certain practices that were morally, marginally unacceptable. And now I try to fight them. I used to ask the question, how far can I go and get away with it? And now I ask the question, how righteous could I become should the Lord's grace fall upon me? How can I pursue it? I used to harbor sin. Now I repent of it. Those are the questions. Let me give you a couple of practical applications. It's, it looks like this. It's, it's the boyfriend who continually sleeps with his girlfriend. He has no intention of confessing that. He has no intention to stop doing it. But he still warms the pew every Sunday. And he looks like he's following God. But he has no interest in turning from it. It, it may look like the woman who is harboring bitterness or resentment or lack of forgiveness of someone who has asked for that forgiveness. And they, when they see them, are continuing to nurse that grudge against them. And yet, every Sunday, they're in the pew speaking about how God's love for the nations and His forgiveness for all people and themselves, and they see no disconnect between those things. It's the man who says he's a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. He's seeking the things that are above. But anyone will tell you his conversation, his time, his energy, and his resources are completely devoted with the direction of the kingdom of this world. And he is eaten up with materialism and all the pleasurable pursuits. David said in Psalm 51, that God doesn't delight in burnt offerings or in sacrifices. You know what he delights in? A broken and contrite heart. The heart is key. We all have this gap between our talk life and our walk life. Questions: Does it bother you? Are you? Would you love to see? And are you pursuing the closing of that gap? Or has it become normalized? Have you made an unfriendly and uneasy alliance? John says this is one characteristic of the group that does not know the Lord. He says there's a second kind of person who thinks they know the Lord, but in fact are lost. He says this person thinks they're perfect, but they're entirely deceived. Look, at me, look with me at verse 8. He says, we say we have no sin, but we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. Now I mentioned earlier that John is likely refuting false teaching. False teaching that was likely advanced within the churches that he's writing to. And there was a high probability that these false teachers who came into the midst were saying something like, Oh yeah, I used to sin. I used to sin and then, and then I came to know the Lord. And His grace was poured into my life and I got His Spirit and I haven't sinned in three years. And I see some of you and you continue to sin and seem to struggle with sin and it's clear to me that you are unsaved. 
It's shocking for us to think that, but to be quite honest, there's an entire tradition in church history that's argued just that principle in terms of sanctification. And it may feel a little strange because it seems so obvious to us that there are problems within our midst, within our own hearts. But the reality is we sometimes act like we're, we're not sinning. You know one of the ways that we act like we're not sinning? Is we are proficient at explaining our sin, but not at admitting it. We're proficient in rationalizing why we sin. We just don't confess it. We excuse it away. You know, if you had my mom, you'd be like this too. Um, if, you, if you had come from the situation that I came from, then you would experience these issues as well. It's a way of saying, I've got a perfectly neat explanation for why I act in the way that I act, so in reality, give me a pass. That's what we're saying. Now, we would never, we'd say, oh, sure, I make mistakes and all these things, but it's really not that big of a deal because actually I've been more sinned against, and it's the other people that need to be doing a lot more confessing. Oh, that feels a little more closer to home. Or, or the way that we get riled up about someone else's sin, and then um, when our sin comes around, it's just not that big of a deal. Hey, I was struck this week thinking about the way David responded um, to Nathan when he came and addressed him with his adultery with Bathsheba and his plotting of the death and execution of Uriah. You remember that story? We talked about it not long ago in our series on the life of David, if you were with us for that. It's fascinating because Nathan comes to him and he tells him this parable. He says, hey, there's this rich man with a lot of sheep and, and he had a traveler come to town and you know what he decided to do? He decided to go steal the one little ewe lamb that a poor man had and he sacrificed it and he put it before him and that's what he fed him. Instead of using one of his own, he went and robbed from someone who didn't even have very much. And you remember how incensed David became? As the Lord lives, that man should die. Well, funny you should say that, David. <laughs> funny you should say that. You are that man. You know, we often get more mad at other people's sin than we do ourselves. We, we, we actually will levy more punishment in their direction than we would ever want levied within our own. It's a sort of a way of saying, I'm not really sinning. The problems are out there somewhere rather than in here. What John's actually saying is, no, the problem is in here. Notice that language of deception. Deception is, I don't see well. It's an internal blindness. This is a person who's walking in the darkness. You've probably had that experience, and people have probably had this experience with you, speaking with them, and they just don't see what it is you're trying to say. It's as if there are, as the Bible says, scales. On their eyes, their face goes blank when you begin to talk about spiritual matters. John says this is, this is who somebody is when they say they don't have any, any sin. But let me, let, me be, let me be clear here on, on this. The reason that's so important is because acknowledging your sin is critical to intimacy with the Lord. It may seem odd, but actually walking... 
light means that you look like and feel like and acknowledge a lot more that you're really dark. You have a lot of issues. Uh, you know this. Well, let me just give you a silly illustration to, to kind of show this. I, I, I once thought, I once dreamed that I was a legend in ping pong. When I was about, you know, 11, 12 years old, my dad had taught me how to play. I could beat every boy in the neighborhood. Whenever I was feeling bad, I'd just invite them over, tear them up on the ping pong table and feel good and just walk away. That's kind of, you know, I thought I was a legend at ping pong until this new boy moved into town who was older and was better. And when I first got to know him and found out, you know how you, know, you have those early conversations about this? Oh, you want to play ping pong? Yeah. Hey, are you pretty good? Oh, no. No, I'm no good. In your mind, you're going, I'm amazing. I'm absolutely amazing. So having one of those moments, and we begin to play, and it's very clear that he takes me to the woodshed in about 30 minutes. And my legendary mindset on ping pong about who I was was dismantled in that moment. And the, the reason that that happened was that by being in the presence of something that's greater than me, by being in the light, as it were, of his presence, I had to come to terms with who I really was and not who I dreamed myself to be. You see, when you walk in light, it actually is going to reveal the reality of yourself. You find anybody in the Bible who, when they're in the presence of God, just go, this is awesome. This is amazing. They fall on the ground hoping to die. It, it, has, an, it has a terrible... We, think, we, we sometimes say, I can't wait to see the glory of God. Everybody who sees it is like scared to death. I mean, that should be very sobering. When we actually look at the text of Scripture. Now one day, by God's grace, we'll be conditioned to be in His glory. <laughs> right now, we're not there. We're not in the condition to be able to receive the full-on glory of God. And so when the glory of God really breaks in, you know what it starts to do? It starts to reveal the darkness that is there. And we feel the sense of horror. We actually feel the sense of judgment. Archibald Alexander gave the illustration in his book, Thoughts on Religious Experience, one of the great 19th century Presbyterian theologians in Princeton. In that book, he described the Christian life as, as one that was once completely shut up in a dark room where you couldn't see anything, couldn't even see your hand in front of your face. And that conversion was when the door of that room slightly cracked and a beam of light shot into the room and you saw the horror of what was in the room. You thought the room was clean. You thought everything was great. You you know, you're a pretty good person. Doggone it, people like you. I mean, that's sort of how you assessed yourself. And then the light of God's holiness broke into that room. And immediately, you begin to see who you are. But then you'll also be able to trace the light to the beauty of who God is. But Alexander used this illustration where he said, the crack is conversion. The rest of your Christian life is that door ever widening. Until you see Jesus face to face. Now, if that door ever widens, what does that tell you? Is there stuff in your room that you had not even seen yet? But keep walking with the Lord. You'll see it soon enough. This is why it's often disillusioning to grow in grace. Because we feel like we're getting worse. Right? You know, try harder, press in more, you'll get uglier. I mean, that's what it's, it's what it appears from the front end. But then you know what happens over the long haul? Ten years from now, you look back and you think, 
how the Lord really has worked. He's removed some of those darknesses. He's diminished some of those realities of darkness within me. And the light has really grown in my life. So if someone who says, I don't have any sin, this is a person who's, who's not clocking with reality. They're not actually seeing things for the way that they are. Well, we can't yet handle the, the doors completely swung open. It would scare us to death. But God also doesn't keep the door where it's at, which is his kindness. You remember in Exodus 33 when Moses says, show me your glory. And God essentially says, you can't handle my glory. And he hides him in the cleft of the rock and he passes by. And you see the outstreamings of the backside of his glory. And it likes to, like to kill Moses there on the mountain. And Moses being that close, his face were told shown so much so that the people asked him to put on a veil. This is significant light. The radiance of God is bouncing off of Moses when he just gets in the proximity of the backside of the outstreamings of God's glory. It was God in his kindness that didn't answer Moses' request because no one can see God and live. It would have, it would have been like, it'd been like reaching out and trying to touch the sun. But it's also God's grace that he showed him something of his glory. He didn't say, no, can't see anything. He said, let me show you what you can handle. You see, over the course of your life, God is opening that door just a little bit more. He's incrementally revealing his light to you and exposing his darkness, and that's his kindness. And this is why Paul, at the beginning of his ministry, can say, listen, I'm the least of the apostles. And before he dies, he says, I'm the chief of sinners. It's not that Paul has lost his quote-unquote self-esteem, to put it in 21st century language. It's that the Apostle Paul had gained God-esteem. So much so that he had been humbled. Humbled by the glory of God and what it is that God had revealed in his life. This is really important that we see that when we live as those who don't sin or excuse our sin away or blame shift our sin or play it down, we are in so many ways actually working against the work of God to sanctify us and draw us into the light. And this is why we just, well, we don't go to the light. We're scared to. We really are. The question we've got to ask is, if if this is the holiness of God, and this is what it is like, how can we press in? How can we walk more deeply in the light that is there that God wants to reveal? How can we gain the confidence to even do so? And we learn here in this text how that works. Look at verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, notice we have fellowship with one another. That quinea draws us together in that light. And the blood of Jesus, his son, notice what? Cleanses us from all sin. And then notice, uh, notice there in verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And then notice again, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you knew that you were clean, when the door was going to swing open, you wouldn't be worried. But if you're, if you're scared of what's going to be found out, you don't want it to open. You, you want to stay in the darkness. How can you be sure that you're going to be cleansed? He's, he tells us here. He tells us here in verse 7 and verse 9, but he gives us even a fuller picture of what that looks like in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. And I want to just focus really on two words of it. Look at what he says. He says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, 
Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. We've looked, we've looked at what it means for, for our actions and our words. What it is we say when we're lost? But think profound. Now I want you to see how God saves the loss and brings us into his way. He does it through Jesus Christ. And I want to focus on those two words, propitiation and advocate. Those two words are key because they're key to the cleansing piece that's here. Now I'm just going to assume that propitiation, hopefully I'll be able to say it, propitiation in the midst of, of normal conversation is not something that you usually just throw out there. Yeah, now, you theological types look for ways to drop that from time to time. There's a few of you out there. But for most of us, we don't, we don't drop that word very often. We may not even be sure as to what it means. The word very simply means satisfaction or appeasement. Bringing, in a, in a sense, something to rights. Something that was out of accord, something that wasn't right, something that deserved judgment, it's brought into peace. It's brought into satisfaction. It's brought, it's brought into appeasement. You can hear it even in the context of the word. Now, let me tell you how this works. True confession time. There is a parking ticket right now that sits on the Sheridan kitchen counter. It's Nate's. It's an $11 parking ticket. Downtown Franklin gave it to me. Now, I will have you, I will have you know, um, parking tickets double in price in, in Franklin if you get more than one. So if you get 11, you have $11 tickets, your first one is $11. Your second one's $22. Your third one is $44. You see where we're going? See where we're going here? Now, don't ask me how I know that, that that actually happens. But I've heard rumors that that's how it works. And just consider yourself warned, okay? That's the way it works. Now, at the end of the year, though, this is very encouraging. It starts all over at the end of the year. Like you get a clean slate again. So just, again, word of the wise. Right now, Franklin, the city of Franklin, has a claim on me for $11. They do. A violation. I'm in violation. And the $11 is what is needed to bring satisfaction to the case, to the charge. I, I, if I pay them the $11, I bring propitiation. I bring satisfaction to what it is that's demanded. The charges are satisfied. They are appeased. Now, the reason that's really important is that all of us have a significant, much more significant parking ticket. And um, it's, it's not has to do anything with parking. It has to do with sin. Sin, the charge of sin is upon our record. And we're told in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. And Jesus and the New Testament unpacks in great fullness that the eternality of that death and its punishment we are due. Which means that there's no way that we can pay that without losing entirely ourselves to eternal torment. This is why Jesus came. Jesus came on the cross to shed his blood, to satisfy, to bring to rights, to, a, to bring to appeasement that which was out of accord, that which needed to, to be satisfied. He's the one who did that, and he did it through his own blood. For without, 
the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, the writer of Hebrews tells us. Jesus is the one, as our representative, he's the one who went and paid the fullness of that pain. So he's brought in complete satisfaction. So that claim, if you're in Christ, that claim is no longer on your life. Your slate is entirely clean. You are not guilty and the case is closed. The filing has been put in the filing cabinet. It's done. Jesus has done it. He is your propitiation for your sins. But he's not just that. We're told here he's, he's your advocate. It's a legal term that literally means he's your, he's your defense. He's your defense lawyer. Now, I want you to think about this because when you sin, what's one of the things that happens? If it really captures you and you, you really feel the guilt of it, your, your, your self begins to accuse yourself, right? And you begin to, you know, you, you don't know Christ. You're not worthy of anything. That, that internal voice begins to talk. And then external voices sometimes will levy in as well and they'll bring accusations against you. And you know what the evil one is called in the scriptures? The accuser. He's the one who levies the charge against you. And here's what's remarkable is that Jesus is the one who paid the charge and now Jesus, as your eternal spiritual defense attorney, stands up and is the one who argues your case that when the evil one comes or even when your conscience comes and it says to you, you're not one of God's, you're not of His, you're one who would not seek Him, you're one who's fallen short in every single way. Jesus is the advocate that says, no, I paid for that. Their account is clear. Their account is clear. If you're truly in Christ, that's the status. That's the beautiful status that you walk in. Jesus is both the, the, the just and the justifier of those who are in Him. This is why in verse 9 of the text, it says that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Notice He didn't say He is faithful and kind. He's faithful and sweet. He swept it under the rug. He winked at it. No, He paid for it. He paid for it. Which means that He will never require any other payment from you. It's been paid in full. Now, if you truly believe that, that he is both the payment and the one who defends the payment in the heavenly places for you, you know what you'll be willing to do? Confess your sins. You'll be able to freely do it. You'll be able to freely confess. Why? Because it is confidence in Jesus that leads to confession, true confession and and the movement away from sin unto righteousness. It's God's kindness, we're told in the book of Romans, that leads us to repentance. Some of us change because we're afraid that he's going to come and hit us over the head with a club. That's not how God works. He doesn't punish us for our sins. Now, will he discipline? Yes. Why does he discipline? Because he's, he's really, he hates you? No. He loves you. He loves you. He, he disciplines you in the way that a parent who loves their child disciplines their child so that they'll be conformed into the way of what is good and right and true. When we begin to embrace Jesus as our propitiation, when we begin to see Him as our advocate, the one who defends for us, you see, no longer do you have to explain your sin instead of admit it. No longer do you have to try to get a pass 
for what it is that you've done wrong. No longer do you have to have vitriol towards those who commit sins that you think you're above in arrogance. All of a sudden, it humbles the playing field and it fills your heart full of gratitude and you realize out of the debt of love, you want to run and chase after the God who would love you and care for you that way. And you begin to become one who wants to walk in the light. That's the light. You see where we are right now? We're in the light. We're talking about the glorious light of the gospel. And don't you want to press into that light? Don't you want it to reveal more? Don't you want to be like the woman who was a prostitute and came and who wept on Jesus' feet and washed his feet with her hair and gave of the expensive ointment upon his feet? And Jesus says to her, she loves much. Why? Because she's forgiven much. She sees the depth of the darkness that he has paid for. And now in his face, she sees the beloved light of a Savior that she could never earn for a payment that she could never have in any ways through her works achieved. And it astonishes her that someone could fully know her and fully love her. And that's you, my friend in Christ. That's you. Why do you go back to the darkness? Why go back to the darkness? You know it's only going to kill you. That's what the darkness tries to do. You don't know what's in the darkness until you the darkness is where the evil one is. But the light is where Christ is. And yes, that light will sting your eyes. Like, like coming out of a movie theater in the middle of the day. Your, lights, your eyes squint. It's painful. But then they adjust. And when they adjust, you don't want to go back into the darkness. Embrace the bad news about yourself so that you can embrace the good news about what Jesus has done. Don't run back into the darkness. Don't be like those bugs underneath the stones in your yard. When you kick it open and the light comes in and they start rushing everywhere to get back into the darkness, don't be like them. Stand in the middle of the light. God will uphold you there. God has made you for the light. And incrementally as that door opens throughout the course of your life, what you'll find is you are actually prepared and conditioned for the day when unbelievably, friends, unbelievably, you will see him face to face. You will see the absolute, unmitigated glory of God and you will not cower in fear and hope to die. You will with joy embrace the Savior who is the lover of your soul. That day is coming. That day is coming. That's the work that the Lord is about. It's what he wants to press into your life today. I don't know what you're hiding, but we're all hiding something. Bring it out into the light. Bring it out into the light. That's, that's not who you are. Bring it out into the light. The light is bigger than anything that you think is too big in the darkness. There's nothing too big for the glorious light of what it is that the gospel presents to you. Do not cower in the darkness. The Lord calls you into the light. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. We have been made a city that is to be set upon a hill. Let's walk in the way of that light. And as we walk into the way of that light, let the confidence and the cleansing and the conforming into the image of Jesus take place.
And we'll experience the joy of the Lord as our strength. Let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, only you can do that work among us. Only you can do that work. These are words unless there is a power that is your spirit that leads this beyond the moment of the message into changed lives. We beg you for it. For apart from that, everything is in vain. But in that, the truth and the reality of your glory and our good is revealed. So come in power and leave leave the Spirit and His transformation with us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.